This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. I think that uh, I've never felt uh, as confident uh, as I currently do in terms of this, of our new management. As I mentioned when I first joined the company, it's rare to have an opportunity to work at a company that's not only legendary in what has already accomplished, but also uniquely poised to expand across all lines of business. To maximize current opportunities and find new paths to higher growth. This includes exploring an alternative strategic option for WWE Network, realizing greater economics from WWE's international markets, and cultivating new business opportunities. When the pandemic hit and sports leagues and content providers began to postpone and shut down, WWE became focused on not if, but how we were going to continue to deliver our in-ring content to our fans through our media partners. We needed to provide relief for our audience and escape from their fear and uncertainty and do our best to deliver on our mission of putting smiles on faces. Hello to WWE shareholders. Today I'll review WWE's financial performance, liquidity and capital structure, and business outlook. WWE generated third quarter revenue of $221.6 million, up 19%, and adjusted OEVIDA of $84.3 million, up more than two times. Both were driven primarily by higher rights fees from U.S. distribution agreements. Everybody and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. It is Friday, October 30th, 2020, which means that yesterday was Thursday, October 29th, the day that WWE reported its third quarter earnings. I have just woken up from a nap. I've been doing interviews all day. The phone has been ringing off the hook. The email alerts. They just keep coming in. The wrestling media ecosystem wants to know. The stock analysts on Wall Street want to know. You, the intelligent and trustworthy listeners of WrestleNomics Radio, want to know just what happened. How do we make sense of all the numbers, the facts, the figures? It turns out WWE has a new top star who was unveiled on Thursday. And he, too, has not gone through training at the WWE Performance Center. New President and Chief Revenue Officer Nick Khan made his debut, along with Chief Financial Officer, also making her debut, Christina Salen. But that's not all. Stephanie McMahon, WWE's Chief Brand Officer, appearing in an elevated role on the earnings call. Vince McMahon, the CEO and Chairman, is just ecstatic. He's optimistic. The camaraderie, the talent, the revenue, the net income... The multi-part Netflix documentary. There's so much to talk about and go through. And analyze. WWE is as profitable as it's ever been. We'll get to it all. But first... So let's quickly run through some of the major headlines. Some of the major facts. And news that came out of this report. The first one... In just nine months, provided WWE does not report a money-losing quarter in Q4, WWE now has a net income for nine months of 2020 of $118 million. What does that mean? That means that WWE in 2020 is having already its most profitable year ever, even when you adjust for inflation. Yes, in a year where they haven't sold any tickets since the month of March. New President Nick Khan also announced that WWE has made a deal with Netflix, selling them a multi-part documentary on the life of Vince McMahon. He said it'll be one of the highest-budgeted documentaries in Netflix's history. Bill Simmons will be executive producer, and Chris Smith, who directed the Fire Festival documentary, 
will direct and produce this one on Vince, along with WB Studios. Nikon also said WB will be working with its India media partner, Sony, on an event in 2021 that will feature their developing Indian superstars. The event will air in India on their Sony platforms and will be distributed domestically in the United States. Other highlights. W Network average paid subscribers are now at 1.6 million as of Q3. That represents an increase of 6% compared to the Q3 of 2019. That is better than I thought they would would be doing. E-commerce, WB's online merchandise business, continued to overperform during the pandemic, somewhat offsetting the lack of any venue merchandise sales. WB reporting $9.1 million in online merchandise sales for Q3, compared to the Q3 of the prior year when online and venue merchandise sales totaled 10.1, so only a million dollars more in the Q3 of the prior year. So those are the news headlines, I think, that come out of this. Uh, We're going to dissect the audio of this conference call in a moment. What are my big takeaways? What did I learn from this conference call, from this earnings report? Number one, the profitability was a lot more than I expected. As we already said, WE is now, in just nine months, more profitable than any year in their history. Real dollars. And we can get into why. In short, WE is not a live event business. It is a media business. AEW is a media business. New Japan is a live event business still. Impact Wrestling is a media business. Your local independent wrestling promotion is a live event business. WWE, a massive media business. They make the vast majority of their money by basically selling video in one form or another. Secondly, Nick Khan made his debut. I thought Nick Khan was impressive. I thought new CFO Christina Salen did a fine job as well. I think it was significant that Stephanie McMahon had such a prominent role in this earnings call. I think that represents the elevation of her importance in this company. In particular, I thought Nick Khan was a stark contrast to the feeling that I got from those years of listening to George Berrios and to an extent Michelle Wilson on these earnings reports in the past. I think George and Michelle had strategies. They were smart people. But Nick Khan seems like somebody who has the special kind of experience that WWE especially needs. That is being somebody who is very experienced in negotiating media rights and understanding the associated industries. And he already has the track record of doing it for WB when he helped them complete uh, their U.S. TV deals with Fox and NBC Universal when those deals were done in 2018. When Nick Khan was basically hired through Creative Artist Agency, his former employer, to help WB complete those deals. To jump back to talk about profitability for a moment, uh, if you've been following the work that I've been doing lately, you know that one of the big questions I had was around what was the cost of the Thunderdome relative to the cost of doing Ron Smackdown at the Performance Center. And I am perplexed with the results that we got on Thursday. WWE's earnings, its net income, exceeded the estimate of the average analyst. The earnings exceeded the estimate of even the most optimistic analyst. I was way down on the low end. It greatly exceeded my expectations. Revenue is easy to predict. Everybody got the revenue right. What's harder to figure out are the expenses, especially in this era. I thought we would end up with expenses related to the Thunderdome that would be quite higher. But in WB's 10Q, its quarterly report, which is a very long document that they publish with the SEC, WB reported operating expenses in its media division uh, last quarter, Q2, of $99 million. $99 million for Q2 operating expenses to produce all of the media content that they produce. Q3, you would think that it would be higher because Q2 was entirely doing Raw and SmackDown at the Performance Center, you know, presumably very inexpensively. Go to Q3, just under half of that time is at the Thunderdome, at the Amway Center. I don't think the Amway Center was a huge expense. Basically, we know that it wasn't. But I would have thought that the, the Thunderdome would have added would have at least added expense relative to what was going on at the Performance Center. So again, Q2 operating expense for media, $99 million. Q3 with the Thunderdome for about half of Q3, $90 million. Q2, 99 Q3 lower, lower, $90 million in operating expense. I don't know how to make sense of that. Our payments to the partners like the Famous Group who are helping them provide 
the Thunderdome experience on Raw and SmackDown? Are those payments somehow delayed and NW did not even account for them in this quarter? I don't know. CFO Christina Salen, though, did give the impression that the fourth quarter will be less profitable than the third quarter. And by the way, the fourth quarter is going to include expenses related to the Capital Wrestling Center, which is what's going on at the PC for NXT. And in the fourth quarter, you've got employees coming off of furlough as well. Here's Christina Salen saying essentially that. With regard to fourth quarter performance, WWE anticipates that fourth quarter 2020 adjusted OIBIDA will be below third quarter 2020 results. WWE anticipates 40 to $45 million in incremental fourth quarter expenses versus the third quarter. This is due to 22 to $27 million from, one, incremental production expenses associated with the creation of WWE Thunderdome and Capital Wrestling Center, and two, incremental personnel expenses associated with employees returning from furlough. Both of these are expected to continue in the coming year. So now if we back up just a few months and think about when the pandemic was first starting to affect the economy and affect WWE's business, and think about what happened in April, WWE made a number of layoffs of employees, more memorably, they made layoffs of talent, and we heard explanations, uh, not just from fans, but from people within WWE, including Paul Levesque, who seemed to be suggesting that these were moves that WWE needed to do in order to secure its financial future. Let's make sure we're being accurate and fair here. The quote from uh, Executive Vice President Paul Levesque was that uh, he, he was being asked a question by Fightful's Sean Ross Sapp about the uh, situation with Drake Maverick, where he was released before he was eventually re-signed. Uh, he, sa- he, was, he said that uh, we already had the tournament booked out. This was something that Drake Maver- Maverick was involved in. Uh, Triple H says, and I believe it was a little bit of a jumble, but we already had it promoted. Then the releases happened, which is horrible. No one wants to see anyone lose their job, especially in the world right now. A lot of companies around the world are having to make tough business decisions to ensure they're still there. Difficult decisions were made. He, Drake Maverick, was given the option of continuing the tournament and wanted to prove that he could still be there. And let's remember, it was Seth Rollins back in April, following the releases and the announcement of cost-cutting and layoffs, who was critical of fans who he said were being negative and hostile toward WWE in reaction. Rollins said, The one thing I'm seeing that is a little upsetting to me is all the negativity and hostility toward WWE. This is a difficult day for everyone, for all of us. And I think if ever there was a moment for us to unify and for us to kind of band together and try to do the best we can to keep this business alive, the best we know how, this is that moment, and so on and so on. I even had a lawyer emailing me questioning my estimate that WWE was going to remain profitable throughout 2020 despite the pandemic. And in particular, questioned my assertion that WWE's TV rights fees were not at risk. This lawyer wrote to me, among other things, I can't imagine that WWE's carriage rights fees won't be impacted by the pandemic. Watching all three WWE programs, I've noticed that their ad base over the last month or so has gone from some Class A and many Class B advertisers to lower revenue ads and public service announcements related to COVID-19, which may be uncompensated as a public service. Knowing that, it's hard to believe that Fox and NBC Universal can continue to pay WWE its full carriage rights fees based upon the higher rate that the Class A and B ads would generate. End quote. So I bring up all this now to reflect on uh, what happened back in April and to look at the news that we know now. WWE has, in nine months, $118 million in net income, its most profitable year ever in 2020, as long as they at least report a zero net income in Q4. Layoffs certainly saved WWE some money. They were not a matter of financial survival. TV rights fees were not diminished in any way. And I would suggest people like this lawyer who uh, was emailing me, which I'm, I'm always glad to have lawyers email me, by the way. But I think this person did not understand the economics of the TV industry and may not have been aware of certain facts like the fact that a network like Fox or a network like the USA Network, get the majority of their revenue, not from ads, but from transmission fees that cable and satellite systems pay to carry those networks. Seth Rollins, at least on this account, is apparently uninformed about the economics of the industry that he works in. And Executive Vice President Paul Levesque either is as well or is being disingenuous when he made it sound as if WWE was, quote, having to make tough business decisions to ensure they're still there. Again, WWE is having its most profitable year ever, having not sold a single ticket since the middle of March. Now, WWE has no legal requirement to employ anyone. 
But if you're trying to dismiss fan negativity or criticism with an economic argument that depends on WWE's profitability being at risk, if that was the defense back in April, it's now October 30th and the facts are in. And it's clear that the premises your argument depended on were wrong. The company is more profitable than ever, not because it has increased its popularity over the last several years, but because of the media ecosystem that the company finds itself in. Its increased financial success is less due to the company's internal performance and more due to the external TV and media economy that surround it. Now, on the positive side, this is a much better day for WWE this Q3 day than the Q2 day that happened three months ago. WWE was challenged a lot about its TV ratings, which were declining at the time, and TV ratings since, especially after the setup of the Thunderdome, especially after the return of Roman Reigns, who was on SmackDown. Ratings have held up quite well, even despite WWE facing a lot of sports competition, including uh, Monday Night Football starting up again in September. WWE exceeded all expectations when it came to its profitability for the quarter. Nonetheless, the stock price staying pretty normal. It was, in fact, down on Friday by about 2.5%. Maybe that relatively small reaction is, is a reaction to the forecast that Q4 will be less profitable. So you can read all the documents for yourself if you want to at corporate.w.com. You can listen to the conference call on that website as well. The audio is also on the WrestleNomics YouTube channel. But I want to go through now the Q&A session, which is where the stock analysts try to dig in deeper into the information that W is willing to share. And this is always where things get especially interesting. So the first question on the Q&A is from Guggenheim analyst Curry Baker, who picks up on the biggest topic of conversation from the last call, which is the TV ratings for Raw and SmackDown. Hey, good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks for the questions. Uh, first, uh, maybe one on the ratings. Uh, you know, obviously, we all see that the ratings remain under, under pressure for both Raw and SmackDown. Um, I, I think we all understand the impact of COVID just on the product generally. Um, but can you, uh, you know, give us any concrete plans you guys have going forward to improve ratings? And I guess for investors, just clearly lay out the strategy going forward to improve ratings. And, and separately, thinking longer term, um, if ratings remain at or below current levels, uh, do you think this impacts the overall value of the rights um, heading into the next uh, contract renewal cycle? So let's get some background to Curry Baker's question there. There's some premises there that WWE doesn't want to accept. But you know, as we said, it was a hard summer for WWE. September and October, though, have been better. Uh, August, in fact, was better than June or July. The free fall of ratings for Raw and SmackDown has stopped. But WWE has not recovered to the level that ratings were at before the pandemic, let's say in January or February. So the damage has stopped occurring, but the damage has not been repaired. Now, that's just in terms of raw numbers. That's just in terms of the histories of both Raw and SmackDown. Relative to other programming on TV, though, Raw remains highly ranked. I feel like I say that every episode here. Raw remains highly ranked. SmackDown remains highly ranked. Raw is averaging, in the key demo, fifth on Monday nights. That is lower than it was uh, just a year ago, where, let's say, in Q3 and Q4, where it is now averaging fifth. Last year, in Q3, it was averaging second, and then averaging fifth in Q4. WWE might try to tell you, well, there's more sports competition in there in this year. Perhaps there was. But what about SmackDown? SmackDown is on broadcast or network TV, not on cable. But did you know that in the key demo, from the date of June 12th of this year, all the way through September 25th, that includes the entirety of Q3, SmackDown was the most watched program on Friday night on broadcast TV in the key demo. It was either ranked first every week or it was tied to the nearest 10th with another program. So yes, Raw and SmackDown viewership numbers have fallen, but they are not exactly being beaten out by an increasing number of programs. And Curry Baker's question is, that uh, you know, you've got declining ratings. Still, they haven't repaired to the level of the pre-pandemic numbers. 
Is that going to affect you going forward when you go to renegotiate TV deals? That's coming up for the U.S. deals in 2023. Do lower ratings mean to you that you get less TV rights money? But Vince says, it is what it is. Well, firstly, um, consider this. When you look at television ratings in and of themselves, that's what they are. With us, it's one of our many measurements. When you look at in total, uh, everyone who looks at WD through the course of the year, wow. When you get into platforms, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera, we have far more fans now than we have ever had. So when you look at television ratings, it is what it is. Not to say we don't increase them, of course we do. But aside from that, you know, our total audience is much bigger. So you can't just like hang a hat on, okay, ratings are down. Now, without question, um, we have to have a mothership, and we do in terms of Raw and SmackDown. Uh, and from there, you know, clips and comments and other video and so forth, you know, take it to the next week or the next year or whatever. So it, it's that we're, we're never off the air. It's a Monday night, and then right on into, you know, whatever it is we're doing, back to a Friday night, back to a Monday night, so as well as a, a Sunday pay-per-views. But nonetheless, it, it, it's, it's fine to say ratings are down. It's just I want to give you that bit of color from us in terms of the overall viewpoint. As far as um, uh, ratings getting higher, you know, um, we are doing everything we can. Uh, we, as far as the Thunderdome is concerned, it's been received very well by our fans, brought more back. Um, again, it's better writing, better uh, execution, uh, and talent that people are interested in. So uh, it's, that's pretty basic. So Nick Khan is going to come in there in a moment. But first, let's talk about what we just heard. The elephant in the room to me, and I don't know if this is what Curry Baker was trying to get at with this question. But the elephant in the room to me is that it's Vince's creative that has driven off so many fans. Vince is saying here that we have more fans than ever just doesn't stand to scrutiny. Taking the question about whether the declines in viewership are going to affect W's TV rights value aside, the notion that W has more fans now than it's ever had doesn't stand to scrutiny. Let's think about the long-term annual trends of this company. Yeah, revenue, finances, profits are doing great because the company is so driven by the increase in the value of live sports content. But if we're talking about whether or not the product is popular, whether or not W has a lot of fans who are engaged, well, then we need to look at other metrics. And let's put TV ratings aside because maybe TV ratings are so affected by the changes in media consumption that you just can't take them as that kind of measurement that measures fan engagement or how many fans you've got. But let's think about the long-term metrics of attendance. In terms of total attendance, total tickets that they sold, this is paid attendance. W had 2 million total paid attendees in 2015, 16, and 17. But that fell in 2018 when they did just 1.95 million attendees and then fell even further when they did just 1.6 million attendees in 2019. Attendance is down year over year. Merchandise revenues, too, since 2017 have gone down. Not just venue merchandise sales uh, at venues because, yes, ticket sales, there's fewer people attending the shows. So, of course, venue merch has gone down. But online merchandise was down in each of 2018 and 2019. That trend now is clearly being reversed in 2020, but due to the pandemic and lack of any venue merchandise sales. For four straight quarters from Q2 2019 through Q1 2020, W Network paid subscribers worldwide were down in year-over-year comparisons, which is the fairest way to compare W Network subscribers because of the seasonality related to WrestleMania. YouTube views even, measured by Social Blade from 2018 to 2019, 2019 was a little bit lower than 2018, 4.7 billion views to 4.4 billion views. And that's way up in 2020, though, already. I think Google Web Search is a good way to measure, both worldwide and in particular regions, just how top of mind a subject like WWE is for people generally. Google Web Search for WWE-related topics has been down in each year since 2016, both worldwide and in the U.S., and those trends continue through 2020. 
That data is volume adjusted. And when you look at the Google trends related to other sports leagues, like the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, MLS, NASCAR, golf, tennis, UFC, boxing, none of those sports or those sports leagues have declined since 2016, like web searches are in decline for WWE. In fact, web searches for most of the sports and or leagues that I just mentioned have increased over that time, bearing the effects of consumer behavior around new and old media in mind. There is little to no evidence to support the notion that WWE has more fans now than it did a year ago or four years ago. And to the contrary, there's evidence to support the notion that, especially main roster brands Raw and SmackDown, have become less and less popular over the last four years. And let's look at just TV viewership of all wrestling programs. Let's look at Raw and SmackDown compared to the newer programs, NXT and AEW. NXT and AEW, in the now-completed month of March for them, they're doing, in the key demo, almost exactly what they were doing in the month of March. NXT's key demo rating for March is 0.19. In March, it was 0.20. For AEW, it was 0.33. In October now, 0.31. By the same comparison, Raw is down 22%. SmackDown is down 23%. Again, 22%, 23% declines when the rate of change for NXT and AEW is almost zero. What's the key difference between Raw and SmackDown and NXT and AEW? Raw and SmackDown are driven by the creative genius of Vince McMahon and NXT and AEW are not. This is an issue that has only gotten worse over the last four years. And it's an issue that nobody directly brings up on the conference calls in terms of the stock analysts don't quite get They beat around the bush of the issue, but they don't quite bring it up. And I doubt the people who work closely with Vince in WWE have the gall to bring it up either. And I understand the talent, by and large, are just generally intimidated by Vince. And by God, this company is doing great financially, so what could there be possibly to complain about? All right, let's let Nick Khan talk some sense to us. Absolutely. This uh, is in terms of the, the rights, uh, as Vince pointed out, linear television has lost eyeballs. Viewership has not. So consumption of content across many, many parties is up significantly. Uh, con- cons- consumption, excuse me, of content for us, as Vince mentioned, is up significantly. So we're confident in being in the marketplace that our rights are going to continue to go up. If you look at some of the head-to-head ratings since COVID hit, head-to-head against the Stanley Cup Finals on network TV, our ratings exceeded theirs in the demographic. We went up against the Lakers and LeBron uh, on one or two occasions. We had a ratings increase week to week on that. So we're confident in where the product's going, and we're confident that the marketplace understands that. And I think that all from Nikon makes sense. As I said earlier, despite the viewership of the programs individually over their historical timelines being in a decisive state of decline, those programs are on SmackDown are still leading well above all other programming generally. And take that into consideration with the fact that, you know, according to things that I've read, the cost of replacing Raw and SmackDown with, let's say, one-hour drama series, which is going to take multiple of those, by the way, to replace the multiple hours per week of Raw and SmackDown, replacing Raw and SmackDown with original series is more expensive per hour, and it doesn't provide the network with year-round first-run content, Raw and SmackDown do. And as much as these TV deals are unprecedented and huge, and the biggest business deals in the history of pro wrestling, nonetheless, that notwithstanding, networks like the USA Network and Fox are getting this 
kind of programming and getting the key demo viewership delivery as a result of Raw and SmackDown at a relatively inexpensive rate. That's right. As, as great as those US TV deals are, wrestling continues to be relatively cheap programming and arguably continues to be undervalued. Meaning, there is, as, we, as it stands here today, still reason to believe that Raw and SmackDown will be due for some sort of increase, maybe not nearly as big as the increase that they got last time in 2018, but they stand still due to get an increase, I think, in 2023. And maybe it's just a 20% or a 40% increase for raw and smackdown in the hobby it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks we hype ourselves up thinking "Ah, maybe i can pull a ken griffey jr rookie card but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates it's all just a shot in the dark until now introducing slab packs from arena club.com the only repack that provides real value a complete view of all possible cards and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy slab packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like You know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun. And sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever. But if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs. And it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. And you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. What's going on, guys? This is Rich from the Flagship Podcast here on the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. If I could have a moment of your time, I'd like to tell you about one of our sponsors, Eufy Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock is a smart lock, a 2K camera, and a doorbell all three-in-one offering you triple security so you can have everything in one device rather than installing many pieces on your front door but it's not just for security the eufy video lock is also for convenience no more concerns about losing keys and you can assign passwords to your family members and see them coming back home via the integrated cameras some other great features we love about the eufy video lock is it is easy to install and set up with just a phillips screwdriver no drilling required keyless entry no more fumbling for keys when your hands are full you never have to worry about kids losing keys or passing among renters you also have 0.3 second 0.3 second fingerprint 
recognition, and one second unlocking. Again, 0.3 seconds, it's going to recognize your fingerprints, and in one second, it's going to unlock. And with the AI self-learning chip embedded, the more you use it, the more accurate it will be. Also, no battery anxiety. You have a rechargeable battery in there that could last around four months, and you will get a low battery notification before it runs out. Uh, passcode unlocking, a remote control with a 2K clear sight. See who's at your door and control from anywhere through the Eufy app. With enhanced night vision, you can have optimized view even in the evening. You can also secure your package delivery by view and two-way audio. And then best of all, no monthly fee. A bunch of other brands out there are going to charge you a monthly fee. You have your recordings locally and you never have to pay for storage. Customer service, Eufy's got you handled as well. They are on standby for you 24-7 so you can enjoy a worry-free experience with an 18-month warranty, all backed by their professional customer service team. Contact them anytime by telephone, email, or live chat. Personally, as a homeowner, I love my Eufy Video Lock. I have the ability to see what's going on when I'm not home, when packages have has arrived, and, and really the thing I love the most about it, the ease of being able to lock and unlock my doors without having to fumble with my keys and reach in my pocket or wait, no, crap, they're in my backpack, all that sort of stuff. All this is happening while my dogs are barking at me. You know what? Not anymore with the Eufy Video Lock. I touch it. 0.3 second fingerprint recognition. One second doors unlocked much much easier so if you want to jump on board with eufy video lock search eufy video lock that is e u f y video lock again that's eufy video lock e u f y video lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door And if all that, all what I've just said is true, then it would stand to reason that NXT and AEW Dynamite both stand to get an even bigger increase because they are even more undervalued. While they currently deliver far less of the viewership that Raw and SmackDown do, they are paid even less relative to the, the viewership that they're delivering. Again, so let's say if Raw and SmackDown are due for a 20 or 30 or 40% increase, then maybe NXT and AEW are due for a 2x or 3x increase. We'll talk a little bit about NXT in specific a little bit later. But Curry's next question is about Amina TV deal that has been talked about for, I think, two years now. Amina means Middle East, North Africa. WWE's partner, former partner in the MENA region, OSN, decided to stop doing sports broadcasting in April 2019. WWE has been in search of a broadcast partner in the region ever since. They've been negotiating with a network called MBC, which is owned at a rate of 60% by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, their friends. But WWE, despite its greatest efforts, just cannot seem to get a deal done, which has been the subject of an ongoing class action lawsuit. Uh, from shareholders. One final question on uh, the MENA television rights. Is there any update there? Are, are you guys still talking to the Saudis or other parties um, regarding getting a deal for the MENA region? Um, and if so, can you frame you know, any expectations or, or timeline? Uh, we, we're still in contact with them uh, on uh, that basis and concerning uh, our rights. We're still negotiating. Um, and I sure as heck don't want to put a timeline on when this is going to happen. Um, but uh, it will happen one day. I don't know when that is. Yeah, and I'm still in contact with my ex-girlfriends. I doubt such a deal is going to get done at any time in the foreseeable future, if ever, with NBC in particular. Be Out Q is a pirate broadcaster that is reportedly supported by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia that is currently illegally broadcasting content, including WWE content, in the region. And that seems to be a disincentive for anyone in the region, including NBC, to make a deal to pay for WWE content. But next we go to J.P. Morgan, J.P. Morgan's analyst, David Karnowski, and he wants to know about the strategic alternatives to the WWE Network, which to us layman's means... What's going on with uh, selling pay-per-view rights off of the network? Thanks, Curry. All right, we'll take, our, we'll take our next question from David Karnofsky with J.P. Morgan. Your line is open. 
Uh, thank you. Uh, Nick, I was hoping maybe you could elaborate a little bit on, on what you mean for potential strategic alternatives for the network. Um, you know, does this entail an outright sale of the service or maybe just some of the content? And do you envision doing something that would impact the network on a global basis or would this just be on the domestic side? Everything you said outside of a sale of the network is what we're looking at. So it would be a licensing of the network. Uh, as we know, there are a number of streamers now domestically and abroad. Everyone is looking for subs that will travel. Uh, we believe, and it seems like the media marketplace believes that we have those. Uh, so we are now in constant dialogue uh, with companies domestically and globally about potentially licensing the network to them. So just to restate that first sentence from Nikon, everything you said outside of a sale of the network is what we're looking at. So there's some clarity that I'm hearing for the first time that W is not looking to sell the entire network. I get the impression that they're primarily looking at selling what we call the pay-per-views. And they're not using language, the pay-per-views, because at this point, the term pay-per-view in reference to what we think of as pay-per-views is kind of a misnomer. Another thing I get out of that is, is the question about, are you looking to deal this domestically or globally? When it comes to uh, products like Peacock, that streaming service is not yet being distributed globally. The W Network is distributed in almost every country. So maybe if pay-per-view rights get dealt in the U.S., it's to just one streamer in the U.S., or it's to a streaming player that's covering the U.S. and a few other countries. And maybe pay-per-views continue to be distributed on the W Network in some countries. Can you imagine the Twitter upheaval over that? Until WWE can make streaming deals with other streaming players in various markets. Not saying that that's what's going to happen, but that's, they're saying that that's what's, they're, they're open to whatever, right? So let's go into some more depth on that question of WWE selling the pay-per-views off of the network, maybe onto a streaming player. So somebody in the financial community asked me what I thought of, you know, what was talked about on the conference call. You know, do I, do I get a sense that a deal is eminent? And my sense is that, you know, I'd be surprised if the network content or the pay-per-views do get sold before the end of this year. Um, until the customer subs of some of these other newer services maybe settle down and it's clearer to them what kind of content they want or they need, what kind of audiences they need to capture maybe that they haven't captured yet. Uh, maybe then it'll become more clear to these streaming services, you know, who needs WWE and how badly. Um, besides that, and probably more importantly, I think, you know, we need to think about how wrestling defies the comparability uh, to other forms of sports and entertainment. Um, my, my philosophy is always that wrestling is not a perfect analogy to sports and it is not a perfect analogy to entertainment. And, and when we get into discussions where we try to analogize wrestling to sports or to entertainment, either of those, uh, we run into some problems. And I think those analogies start to fall apart. How is that relevant to this subject? So wrestling is this unique, strange medium and wrestling pay-per-view events are a strange but really valuable product within that weird medium. So I wonder if one of the hangups on making a deal is solving what the strategy is about how you're going to offer the pay-per-views to the consumer. You know, until 2014, pay-per-views were sold via your ca uh, cable or satellite system individually for about $60, at least here in the U.S., that was the price point. And they're still sold on pay-per-view, right? But that's the exception. They're generally consumed on the network. Um, and W decided in 2014 that they were going to break their system. They were going to disrupt themselves. And uh, they figured that they could attract uh, more revenue that way for themselves. And they could circumvent the pay-per-view splits that are about 40% for them, maybe a little bit better since they're, uh, you know, they're among the most successful businesses that have ever done pay-per-view. But generally, that's my, my understanding is that the, uh, the split for a, a, a content creator on pay-per-view is about 
So WWE figured that they could circumvent all that and go direct to consumer, direct to you, the wrestling fan, with the WWE Network, get fans to subscribe for just $10 a month. And that didn't work out as well as they hoped. They thought they could get three to four million subs. As we stand today, they're at 1.6 million. But they took their price point for this product from 60 to $10, which is a huge range. And uh, in a sense, in, in doing that, they undercut the true value of the pay-per-view product, which is at least higher than $10, right? Um, AEW currently does one quarterly pay-per-view via, I guess, what resembles traditional means. They, they sell via cable and satellite companies, but you can also order it digitally through things like Fight and BR Live. $50 is their price point for their quarterly pay-per-views, and they're relatively successful with that. They do about 100,000 global buys each, each pay-per-view each quarter. Um, UFC, they dealt their exclusive pay-per-view rights to ESPN Plus last year. That was a huge deal. With an average annual value of $150 million, according to USA Today. Five-year deal, $750 million total, average annual value, $150. And my understanding now is that in order to watch a UFC pay-per-view, you have to be a subscriber, become a subscriber if you're not already to ESPN Plus, pay $65 a la carte to view the event. But at least in WWE's case, WWE, but at least in UFC's case, pay-per-views have always been a la carte at a similar price point. And UFC has continued to do really successful pay-per-view buys you know, with their pay-per-view events since doing the deal with ESPN Plus. But they haven't had that disruption in pay-per-view price point. So if you buy pay-per-view rights, the rights to all of WWE's monthly pay-per-views to distribute however, what do you do? Does a WWE licensee go back to selling pay-per-views individually at the high price point and just deal with the customer upheaval? Uh, does does doing that contribute to WWE fan disengagement? Uh, or are pay-per-views best offered as part of a monthly fee on their service, kind of like it's part of a monthly fee now? But then, well, do you put it on a standard tier or because this is kind of special content, do you put it on a more premium tier? But bundling the pay-per-views as part of a package risks a lower immediate return on the investment on the millions of dollars that you have to pay to get the rights. And complicating this further, W has a peak pay-per-view event called WrestleMania. WrestleMania has a disproportionate value relative to all the other 11 monthly pay-per-views. In the previous era, where pay-per-views were only on traditional pay-per-view, the B pay-per-views would do maybe 200,000 buys, maybe 300,000 buys. WrestleMania could do a million. And then you've got Royal Rumble that kind of lands in between those two. So again, if, if you've bought the rights to WWE pay-per-views, you might consider offering WrestleMania a la carte because it is so valuable and offering it at a high price point and maybe offer the others as part of a monthly service. So there's, there's a lot of possibilities, a lot of options, but it's not obvious to me what the best strategy is, especially when there's so much friction involved. And I think it is relevant that you would be buying it at a time when fan interest in WWE is declining. But whatever the answer is about what the best way is or what, what way you're going to offer the pay-per-views, whatever the way to sell them is, it seems that it's going to require a more complex and more expensive experience for the consumer who has been trained for the last six years since the introduction of the WWE Network that these events are just the key program that comes as part of a $10 a month bundle. So it is a complex property that they're trying to sell. Valuable, but complicated. You know, I kind of think that maybe pay-per-views are even something that they should consider selling to a traditional TV network. And that would avoid all the complications around how are we going to sell this thing. Or maybe like you, you put the 11 pay-per-views on a traditional TV network, but put WrestleMania on some a la carte price point. So we're going to jump around a bit and go to Brandon Ross's question from Lightshed. And that brings Nick Khan to go into some depth about what he thinks or what the nature of sports rights in general are going to be in, a, in an environment where sports 
ratings in general are lower than they've been before. So what does that mean for the future of sports rights value? Um, especially since you're a sports rights expert. And I, I know you, you said earlier in response to Curry's question that you think about for WWE total viewership, but a lot of your profitability, I would say, is, is reliant on the greater television ecosystem. And I, I wanted to get your perspective on what you think is going on with ratings, not, not just for the WWE, but for sports more broadly. And does that and kind of the broader TV ecosystem pressures impact how you think about who you're going to partner with in the future and how you potentially need to adapt um, uh, WWE's content? And then I have a follow-up. Thanks for the question, uh, Brandon. I think there's a couple things. I think if you look at the structure of the traditional conglomerates, if you will. So remove the, the fang for a moment. If you look at the traditional conglomerates, they're all getting there in terms of the recent corporate uh, structural changes. It certainly appears to us that many of these structures are realizing it's about content first, where we put it second, as long as we put it in a place that the consumers can easily access it. So. Would it be so shocking to you, to me, to anyone um, who's following this stuff if Disney in their reorg uh, is looking at, well, hey, wait a second, uh, we have great intellectual property, we have great films, we have great sports rights. If we put that all into one package, could we be competitive and beat a company like, Net like Netflix? They probably are thinking that. If you look at NBC Universal's reorg, it's sort of indicating the same thing. So the most important thing to us, uh, in addition to our fans, on the business side is that our current partners remain happy with the product while we all look at the landscape about where the business is going to be in three to five years from now. I think we all see where it seems to be going. Let's see if it gets there. If it's a streaming first world, we're prepared for it. So I want to play the follow-up to that too, but let's first unpack a little bit of what they're talking about there. As you may know, Disney has come out with Disney Plus, which is a way for them to distribute a lot of the content that they own. And NBCU has just introduced Peacock, which is a streaming service, where they're going to distribute a lot of the content that they own, or own the rights to at least. And the fang that they're referring to and are going to refer to more refers to, it's, a, it's an acronym that stands for Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. And these are often the, the five companies that people are thinking about when they refer to the big tech companies, the fang companies. And a big question and a question that uh, Brandon Ross from Lightshed often thinks about is whether or not those fang companies are going to get involved in sports TV rights and compete alongside with the usual networks like NBC, Disney's ESPN, Warner Media's TNT and TBS. And if they did, it would probably drive the value up of sports rights even more. And as always, and in the same way in how we talked about pay-per-view rights earlier, this has implications both, both in the U.S. market and for all the markets throughout the world. In the case of WWE, their two biggest international markets for media rights are India and the UK. Great. And then I also wanted to get your view on the core content rights internationally, which was a bit of a disappointment last time. Where do you see the biggest opportunities and what do you think it's going to take to significantly grow international rights? Is, is it simply the fangs, which you just mentioned, becoming um, engaged? And I guess since, since you worked on uh, sports rights deals in the past, where do you think um, the fangs are in terms of their interest for the type of programming that you have? So I think we've, we've all seen with Amazon certainly an appetite for the NFL. We've also seen them sampling 
internationally, specifically with tennis in the UK. Uh, it's certainly an indicator to me if you look at some of their recent executive hires. Uh, we don't believe that you make those hires unless you're going to get uh, more, um, unless you're going to go deeper into the live business. Uh, if you look at Netflix's model, if in fact Disney is contemplating whatever they might be contemplating, and NBC Universal the same thing, if you're Netflix, you're sitting there saying, okay, uh, we can continue to put out fresh content that registers perhaps on a weekly basis, but we haven't yet tested live. So are they looking at testing live? Do they look to test it globally or internationally first so they can make a few mistakes, as it seems that Amazon did with tennis? Um, they're all getting there if they're not there already. So we're going to be them with them. Uh, again, with our current partners in mind first, but as the business continues to shift and Peacock becomes more of a priority for NBC Universal and with Fox's frequent recent acquisition, again, it's all going there. So yeah, our, our anticipation is that the Fangs, if they're not all there, the great majority of them are going to be there in the not too distant future in terms of live. And this is where you can see some of the prowess that Nick Khan has here in terms of understanding or at least having a lot to say about the media ecosystem and the future of it. So this is something that I'm catching up with as I'm recording this. But apparently Amazon uh, bought rights to live stream the Women's Tennis Association for four years. They made this deal last year in 2019. And this, this applies to only the UK and Ireland. I'm learning here that Amazon Prime Video also has rights to the U.S. Open Tennis Grand Slam until 2022, and it has rights to Thursday Night Football for the NFL. So you see that being experimented with on sort of a partial basis or an international basis before plunging in and committing in the region where live sports rights are the most expensive, that is the United States. And Nikon gives the impression that, yes, he does anticipate that at least some of the fangs are going to start being interested in the kind of content that WWE has, maybe internationally first before domestically, competing maybe with uh, the bidding for WWE and other sports linear rights, or maybe they split off, sort of how the NFL has split off the Thursday night rights. Maybe there's linear TV rights to sell on one hand and digital rights to sell to one of these newer players among the Fang companies. And then finally... We'll turn to NXT. There are a number of other questions that I'm not delving into here. Some of them um, are sort of hardcore finance questions that I think will be, that are of interest to me in, 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 in my trying to make estimates for W's quarterly reports. And they are certainly of interest to the stock analysts who, who have to make the estimates. Uh, if you want to hear that stuff again, you can listen to the audio on the WrestleNomics YouTube channel or directly at corporate.w.com. But on the subject of NXT, John Belton from Evercore would like to know about WWE's feeling about monetizing NXT now that it's spent a year off of the W network in terms of its primary live distribution. It's now spent a year on the USA network. WWE previously talked about how this was kind of a experiment to see if they wanted to continue to monetize NXT in this way. There have been various reports and estimates and speculations that it was a two-year deal that W agreed to to give uh, NXT to the USA Network. If that's the case, then that deal will be coming up on expiration in the fall of 2021. Hi, thanks. Yeah, just a couple on NXT. So, um, you know, separate from the Raw and SmackDown ratings, it looks like NXT has held up pretty well. Um, wondering, first off, if, uh, if you can provide an update on when your agreement with USA Network expires for NXT. Um, and now that you've got about a year of distributing NXT through linear TV under your belt, you can compare monetization there versus on the WWE network. Any thoughts about how you might plan to distribute NXT longer term? A uh, couple things on that. Uh, number one, congratulations to the entire team, Paul, his team, WWE team on the ratings last night for NXT, which were particularly strong. Um, We've seen an increase in subscribership on the network, even with the absence of NXT on the network. So we're comfortable uh, with our position there. 
We're enjoying our relationship with USA. We think that platform has led to uh, many eyeballs seeing our new talent. Uh, in terms of the length of the deal, we typically don't uh, talk about those things unless our partners uh, are on board with us discussing it. But it's a certainly long enough term deal uh, where we feel that we have a long runway for Paul and team to continue to grow that product the way that they have. So a few things there. It's true that W Network subscribers have held up and even grown in the time that NXT has stopped being primarily distributed on the W Network. And I think a lot of people thought it might turn out otherwise. Still, NXT takeovers are primarily distributed on the W Network, so that's still there for them. For the, for the people who enjoy NXT, the culmination of NXT storylines still happens exclusively on the W Network. So W doesn't seem to have lost much value by taking the first run of NXT off of the network and putting it on, on the USA Network. And if WWE is getting some money uh, from the USA Network for having NXT there, which maybe it's getting around $30 million for that, maybe. We've never gotten a clear impression of, of how much W is getting. But big congrats to Triple H. Uh, NXT did especially well this past Wednesday. Beating Dynamite in total viewership, but still uh, Dynamite winning on the key demo. Uh, after a few straight weeks of being short of the top 50 in the key demo, NXT was up to 21st on its night on Wednesday in cable. Key demo rating was a 0.25. Key demo rating for NXT has not been that high. It was, it was at a 0.26 on September 1st, but that was when uh, NXT was not opposed by AEW. That was actually on a Tuesday night uh, when NXT was preempted for NHL. But the last time NXT did a 25 rating or better when it was going head-to-head with AEW was way back on February 19th. And remember, that was the special Halloween Havoc episode of NXT. The total audience was 876,000 viewers the last time NXT did a total viewership that large as I scan the spreadsheet and scroll and scroll and scroll. The last time NXT did a, a total viewership of that size was November 20th when it did 916,000 viewers. And it's not as if they took a huge bite out of AEW. AEW did a, did a pretty normal 0.32 in the demo and 781,000 viewers, slightly up from the week prior. In fact, the total key demo audience for wrestling on Wednesday was 0.57. That's just adding NXT and AEW together. A 0.57 in the key demo, way above Raw in the same week with a 0.51. And I bet that will be above what SmackDown did uh, tonight on Friday. Total audience even combined for AEW and NXT on Wednesday. Almost 1.7 million viewers just short of the total audience for Raw on Monday. So anyway, back to the conference call. So Nick, Nick Khan doesn't want to say how long the deal is, but I just want to repeat his words here. But he, he quote, it's a certainly long enough term deal where we feel that we have a long runway for Paul Levesque and team to continue to grow that product the way that they have. Now, I don't know, but the, the, the wording there makes me feel like it's longer than just a two-year deal that would expire in the fall of 2021. But I don't know. But John Belton has a follow-up question related to NXT. And any learnings from you know what's been working with the NXT content that maybe isn't working for Raw and SmackDown? And that, dangerously, sounds like a creative question from one John Belton. And again, I don't know uh, what he had in mind, and maybe I'm just projecting my own view. But that does seem to start to get at what I think is at the core of a lot of WWE's problems with Raw and SmackDown. That is the creative of Raw and SmackDown, which is directed by the head of creative, the CEO and chairman, the controlling shareholder, and Nick Khan's new boss. And here's Nick Khan attempting to answer that question and reassure everyone that everything is fine. I, I mean, I think from, from my point of view... Uh, it seems to be working with a cluttered fall schedule across the board. So, like Vince said earlier, we always want the best writing. We always want the best talent. 
Uh, to do that consistently 52 weeks a year is always going to be a challenge for our company, but I think it's a challenge that we've always lived up to. So we feel good about all three products and that all continue to head in the right direction. I will send my most honest minister to the weavers, thought the emperor. He can judge best how the stuff looks, for he has sense, and no one discharges his office better than he. Now the good old minister went out into the hall where the two cheats sat working at the empty looms. Mercy preserve us, thought the old minister, and he opened his eyes wide. I cannot see anything at all. But he did not say this. Both the cheats begged him to be kind enough to come nearer and asked if he did not approve of the colors and the pattern. Then they pointed to the empty loom and the poor old minister went on opening his eyes. But he could see nothing, for there was nothing to see. For some reason, I'm reminded of that excerpt from A Certain Fairy Tale by Hans Christian Andersen. That's about all I have for this week. I hope everyone has a wonderful and safe and sufficiently socially distant Halloween. Thanks to Post Wrestling. Thanks to John Pollock for having me on. Thanks to ProWrestling.net's Jason Powell for having me on as well. If you appreciate the work we do, consider supporting at Patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. This week I put out the first patrons-only article and analysis of the quarter-hour viewership for WWE NXT and AEW Dynamite, those two shows that go head-to-head every Wednesday night, breaking down what segments overperformed and underperformed and who appeared the most times in them. Big thanks to Corey Gibson for helping me collect that data. Again, that is only for patrons. You can support for $5 a month at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. My written coverage of the WQ3 report is free for everybody, ad-free and paywall-free right now at WrestleNomics.com. There's always something else that I think I'm supposed to remember to plug, but I don't remember what it is right now. Because it's now almost 1 a.m., and it takes me six hours to record this. A one-hour podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening and for your support. You can follow WrestleNomics on Twitter at WrestleNomics. You can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I'll talk to you next time.